Okay, so this is the last uh, week, my last message on, on the law. And I've been nervous about this one all week because I'm, I'm going to try and squish kind of three messages into, the, into today, all right? So I'm nervous about what's going to come out. I've survived so far, but I've done rabbit trails and, and gone too long. But, uh, but anyway, if you haven't been here, uh, what we've been looking at is the law. In week number one, we saw that the law is good. And in week number two, we saw the tone of the law, that the heart of the law is love and it's faith, not self-effort. The law is not, never, the law itself does not preach that you should obey it by self-effort. It's always, it's always been by faith and relationship with God. And then last week, if you've missed, uh, you know, the series so far, if you only have time to listen to just one of the messages, the most important one I think you should listen to is last week's. Um, because in last week's message, I gave a key to understanding the Old Testament law and the Old Testament laws. Uh, if, you don't under, if you don't have the key that we talked about last week, you'll never, the Old Testament law will never make sense to you. And so the key that we talked about last week is the fact that the Old Testament law is made up of four different types of laws, okay? And this is really important. It's not just one. See, everybody, most people, most Christians, when they read the Old Testament law, they just read it as one big bowl of laws, and they're all equal in God's eyes. And some of them are weird, and and some of them are not, but it's all just this schmozzle. And as long as you read them as that schmozzle, it's not going to work. And so there's these different types of laws, and it's really important to understand that there's different types of laws, because each type of law must be read differently, or it's not going to make sense. And so last week, we spent a lot of time on two and three there, the civil laws and the separation laws, but the big example we looked at last week is the eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-tooth law. That's a really, you know, kind of famous, well-known law. Everybody talks about the Old Testament being eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-tooth. And what we saw was that that law has nothing to do, it's not a moral law for your personal life, for you and me to apply. It was never intended to apply to individuals in their daily lives. And yet that's how we read it, because we read all the laws the same. And we saw how that law was not a moral law. It's actually a civil law that's supposed to apply only to the Jewish court system. Has nothing to do with you and me in our daily lives. Had to do with judges in the Jewish court systems when they were sentencing criminals. And so if you read that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law as this is just like do not murder or do not commit adultery, you're going to get that law totally wrong. And you won't see that the spirit of the law is mercy and love. When eye for an eye is, and tooth for a tooth is applied in a, someone's individual life, that's a harsh law. But when you apply it in the courts, it's just and merciful, right? And so this is absolutely essential. You cannot understand the Old Testament law apart from understanding that God did It's not just one type of law. There's many different types of laws within the Old Testament. There's these four types. And we've got, and you won't understand them unless you realize what each type is for. Okay, and so that's really important. And, and this past week, you know, a, a homosexual group, a gay advocacy group in the U.S. released a disgusting video in which uh, they had different little kids making fun of different laws in the Old Testament. And the whole point, and of course, they picked out all kind of the weirdest ones. We're going to talk about some of those weird ones today. But they picked out some of the blood laws and some of the mixing laws and the food laws. And they made fun of all these laws. And the whole point of it was that at the end of it, the point of the video was, see, all these laws are silly and unapplicable in society today. That was kind of the spirit of it. Therefore, so are the laws about homosexuality and some of those. And so there's this attack on, on morality that's going on in our culture right now. And what people do is they assume that all the laws are equal in God's eyes. They just put them all in one lump. And then they say, well, we don't do these ones. So how can you say that we have to do these ones? And so in this series, in the last week and this week, the thing I've been driving home is you can't put them all in one ball. In one ball. 
When God made the law, he made different kinds of laws. Some of them were very important to him. Some were almost not important to him at all. They only had a temporary function. Some of them, God's heart burns for that. They are eternal laws. They are forever. They are good. And other laws just had this temporary kind of thing. And he said, well, they had to do it for a little while, but it wasn't forever, and my heart was never in it to begin with. And until you realize that, and many Christians are going down this path now, and the argument is people will say, well, do you do this? No. Do you do this law? No. Then how can you say this? And then they'll point to some of the most important ones, like adultery or homosexuality or whatever, and they'll say, well, then how can you say we have to do these ones? And the reason we can say it is because these ones are different than these ones. And that has always been in the Old Testament that God loved some laws and only at best liked some other ones. All right? Let me just show you a few Uh, uh, scriptures again, Proverbs 21 verse 3, as I've been doing throughout this, that there are more important laws. There's a hierarchy of laws. There is a hierarchy of laws within the Old Testament. Proverbs 21 verse 3 says this, the Holy Spirit speaking through Solomon, to do righteousness and justice. Those are the moral laws. To do righteousness and justice is, look at this, hierarchy of laws within the Old Testament, more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That's the ceremonial laws. See, God, there's a hierarchy. Some overrule others. Some are forever and some were canceled. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now look at this. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Speaking of some religious laws. And look what he says next. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. I mean, there's a whole bunch of Christians these days going right along with the world and they're saying that the whole law is just one ball. And if you take out one part, you've got to cancel the whole thing. And Jesus himself said, no, 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 no. Within the law, there are weightier matters and less weighty matters. There are matters that are really important to God, and there are matters that are much less important to God. There are weightier matters within the law. And what are the weightier ones? Again, we see justice and mercy and faithfulness, the moral laws. Love your neighbor as yourself and all the laws that go into that. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, people, again, they have this idea when we speak about the law, they have this idea that the law is about legalism and rules. It is not about legalism and rules. The moral laws are all about doing justice and doing mercy and doing faithfulness. It's good. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. He said this, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. We talked about that a lot last last week, which is the separation laws, okay? Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, so the separation laws are canceled as of the New Testament. But keeping the commandments of God. Now, if you don't realize that there's a hierarchy of laws and commands within the Old Testament, this verse makes no sense because circumcision is a commandment in the Old Testament. So God says, for neither this commandment counts, but keeping the commandments. This only makes sense if there's less important ones that have been canceled and more important ones that stand forever, right? And so that's very important. And so last week we looked at that key and we said there's four different types. What we're going to do today is we're going to go through the scriptures. And again, there's just so much we're going to have to miss. And we're going to really skim through at a fast pace. Um, But again, all of this is online in that paper. You can download it for free and, and take your time to get through it. Okay, but we're going to go through and we're going to start to look at specific laws and how do you figure out where a law goes? You're reading in the Old Testament and you come across a law and you want to know, Lord, is this an eternal law for me today? Is this righteousness or is this something I can learn from, but it was only for the Jews thousands of years ago? Okay, and how do we know which laws are for today? How do we know which laws go where? How do we know what laws are ceremonial ones and how do I know which laws are moral ones? Okay, that's that's the quest for today. And uh, I will tell you right now, I'll warn you right now, 
this, I'm nervous. There's one part of this message in particular I'm nervous about. It's rated about PG-14, okay? And it has to do with some delicate women's issues. And so I'm going to pray right now, women, that as I'm praying, you're going to give me grace, okay? <laughs> I got one more to get through here, and, and hopefully I won't put my foot in my mouth during that delicate time, all right? Anyway, bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, in all of this, Father, I'm trying to give you glory. I'm trying to show people how amazing you are. I'm trying to show people that, that the stuff that is, you are being accused of through the Old Testament is so wrong. I'm trying to show people that you are good and you are just and you are brilliant. You're a genius in the laws that you've written. And I pray, Father, that we're going to come into an awe for you and we're going to have a fear of you and a love for you as we experience you and meet you and meet up with your justice and your goodness in these laws. And Lord, one last thing I pray too by the power of your Holy Spirit is that we're going to fall in love with all of the words you've put in Scripture. Old Testament words and New Testament words alike. And that we're going to have confidence as a body here at Southland to read your laws and to hold your hand in relationship with you and walk in, relation, and walk in righteousness on the other hand, obeying your laws. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So which laws apply today and, and which don't? As you're reading your Bibles, that's what we're doing. Last week we talked lots about two and three. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to touch on those today. We're going to spend most of our time in numbers one and four there, the moral and the ceremonial laws. And let's start by talking about the ceremonial laws. And, uh, you know, this past week uh, I was uh, notified that some people in the community are now calling me Pastor Moses. And they meant it as an insult to me, which I was like... Phew, Call me Pastor Moses. I mean, if I get a tenth of Moses' reward in heaven, I'm going to be a very happy man. All right? Um, but, and another thing that they were saying is that we're now into sacrificing goats in, the, in Southland here because of the, I'm teaching on the law. All right? So now you're going to hear it from my mouth, okay? You all know that that's not true. And here, Chris Dirksen says this. The ceremonial laws are canceled. Okay? The ceremonial laws are canceled. There it is. Okay? And uh, these laws... I mean, this is, this is an obvious one. The reason we're going to spend some time here today, though, is there's more to the ceremonial laws than just the sacrifices. And so the sacrifices, we all know, we don't do sacrifices, okay? But I'm going to show you some other laws so when you're reading the Old Testament, you'll be able to look at those laws too and say, okay, I can learn from you, but I don't have to do you because you're ceremonial, okay? And so, but anyway, the ceremonial laws, what was the purpose of the ceremonial laws? God instituted this system of sacrifices. Why did he do that? People say, well, he just likes blood and he likes death. Let me tell you something about God. He never, ever took pleasure in animal sacrifice. Did you know that? Let me show you a couple of passages. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11 says this. The multitude of your sacrifices, God speaking, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. God never took pleasure in animal sacrifice. That was never one of his laws that God's heart was just in this. You better give me sacrifices. Never. Psalm 40 verse 6 says this. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, David says speaking to God, but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So you say, well then why did God uh, institute all these laws about sacrifices? Let me tell you why. And it basically comes down to, to one main thing, and then there's some other points after that. But the reason God instituted all these sacrifices in the Old Testament law is because he wants to live with people. This is the, whole, this is the story of the Old Testament, okay? And by the way, let's just stop there for a moment, because as soon as I say that, most Christians tune out because they've heard that a hundred times. God wants to live with people. God walks with us, okay? I want you to think about that in relation to how most people in the world think about God. 
I want you to think about the fact that in the Garden of Eden, that God walked in the cool of day with Adam and Eve. Do you know what Muslims think about that? If you would tell a Muslim that God wants to walk with you, that God wants to live with people, he wants to walk among us, have a relationship with us, you know what they'll say? Blasphemy. They'll say God is far too powerful and glorious and distant. He would never walk with people. That is beneath him. We are lowly. We are dirt to him. He, he views us from on high. That's how they view a relationship with God. And we've gotten used to this thing. It's one of the most amazing things in the scriptures and one of the most amazing things about our God. And it's all over in the Old Testament. You read through the book of Exodus and the reason God is doing all this stuff with Israel is because he wants to move in with them. He wants to live among them and have them be his people and he will be their God. And he wants to be close to them. Now, problem is that sin causes death and sin is very costly. It always costs something. Okay, and Jesus Christ hadn't died on the cross yet to forgive sins. So God didn't, when he moved in with Israel, he didn't want to have to be lashing out, killing people all the time. And so what he did is he instituted, not because he likes sacrifice at all, not because he takes pleasure in sacrifices at all, but because he didn't want to have to kill people and he wanted to move in with them. He says, in the interim period, before Jesus comes to die for your, for your sins, uh, we're going to institute animal sacrifices, this system of laws that will temporarily, those animal sacrifices never saved anyone. They temporarily covered sin until the time when Jesus would permanently pay for it. All right? Okay, that's very important to realize. Okay, I'm giving some basic theology here now. None of the saints of the Old Testament were saved by animal sacrifices. When Jesus died on the cross, that forgiveness went both ways in time. It went frontwards and it went backwards. And all of the Old Testament sa- saints were saved by faith and were saved by Jesus' blood going backwards in time to them, just like we're saved after the fact. And in the meantime, they were allowed to live and follow God, temporarily covered by animal sacrifices while they waited. Okay? Now, in addition to that... The fact that those animal sacrifices temporarily covered things so God didn't have to kill them. There was, another, there was another function they served, and that was this, to point people. Every one of those laws was supposed to point people towards this, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the precious blood that was going to be shed. And so God instituted this elaborate system of laws, and every one of those laws is pointing to spiritual truths. They're illustrations and they're pictures. This is why, by the way, when you read ceremonial laws, we don't have to do them anymore. We're not bound by them. But that doesn't mean we just ignore them because there's many scriptures. And we could do a whole series on this. Someday I I think I will. But you could do a whole series on, there is all kinds of stuff you can learn about heaven and you can learn about what Jesus did on the cross and you can learn about God's plan of redemption from studying the ceremonial laws because all of them point, they're pictures of spiritual truths. All right? That's why Hebrews 9, verses 9 to 10 says this. This is an illustration. He's speaking of the ceremonial laws. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered, that's the ceremonial laws, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So in other words, when God instituted all those laws, first of all, he never took pleasure in them. Their only purpose was to temporarily cover sins and point people towards Jesus who would come. They were never important, that important to God other than for those reasons. They were temporary. And the moment the new covenant, Jesus died on the cross, they're all gone. Okay? Now, okay, obvious. Everything I've said so far is pretty obvious to most. It's still important to go over. And every one of us would have known when you were reading in the Old Testament, if I see a sacrifice law, that's not for today. Okay? 
Now, some of you might not have known that you could study those things and find out other spiritual truths, but you would have known when you see a sacrifice law, that's a ceremonial law. There's more kinds of laws in the ceremonial laws than just sacrifices, okay? And now let me help you with some of those because those are some of the ones that Christians fight about today. And some Christians say, well, these are still for today. And I'm saying to you, every ceremonial law, we don't have to do today, okay? And so there's another group of laws that he mentions in Hebrews 9, 9 to 10. He talks about food and drink in various ceremonial washings. So, and, and you can see it right there. I had it underlined. So there's two kinds that we see so far of ceremonial laws. They're not just the sacrifices. When you're reading your Bible, it's not just the sacrifices. It's any of the priest laws, the temple laws. It's also any food and drink or washing law that you see. So you're reading in the Old Testament law of what you can eat and what you can't eat and what you need to do before you eat it or how you have to prepare it. All of those are part of the ceremonial laws. All of them have been canceled. We can learn from them. We can learn spiritual truths. We don't have to do them, okay? Now, I want to address something here for just a moment because there's a, there's a big group of Christians right now who are following the Old Testament food laws for health reasons, okay? And, uh, and, and I have no problem with that, right? It's not a sin to follow the Old Testament food laws, there's a, the biggest church in America right now is in, is in Dallas, Texas. Uh, over 40,000 people attend there every week. And uh, they, have, they bought an NBA arena, basketball arena, and that's where they meet for church. Okay, so that's a big church. And they teach all of their members to follow the Old Testament food laws and they, for health reasons. And so they teach their people not to eat shrimp and and, and some of that really good seafood and, and not to eat pig. And, and so they teach them all that sort of stuff. Okay, so here's what I say about that. Good, good for you. There's nothing wrong with following the Old Testament food laws, but don't, if you do, and I know we have people in this church and in this community who also do it. It's kind of a growing thing and uh, for health reasons, all that sort of stuff. Here's the but. Don't look down on the rest of us and our bacon, Okay. See, because here's the thing, and people get all judgmental about this. People take the little laws and they make them into the big ones. God clearly said food and drink is part of the ceremonial laws, canceled. That means none of us here has a moral obligation to follow those food laws. We do not have an obligation. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that those laws were given to us for health. Maybe in the end it is more healthy for you. So you can live 10 years longer than me and I'll enjoy my food way more, okay? Because I'm just going to eat the seafood and the bacon and all that sort of stuff, all right? Here's the thing. It's not, you, so you can do it fine. It's not a moral obligation. Nowhere in the Bible does it say those laws were given for health reasons. It says they were ceremonial laws, clearly, in Hebrews. And it also says it in Colossians. Here, look at this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow. These were just pictures pointing towards the real thing. They're just a shadow of the things to come and the substance, the reality is Christ. All of these laws were pointing to Jesus. When he came, there was no need for those laws anymore. Okay? And so those are ceremonial laws. So we've got a couple kinds there. Now there's a third kind of ceremonial law we find in here as well. Remember, the ceremonial laws are not just the sacrificial laws. Okay, so it's food and drink and washing laws. You're reading, you come across those, you say, okay, I can learn from you, I can study you, but I don't have to do you. Number three, we see another kind here, and that is festivals, holidays, and Sabbaths, okay? And again, I know there's lots of Christians who, today, different movements within the church where people are following the Jewish festivals, and you know what? That's great. I mean, God gave the Israelites seven festivals to celebrate in the Old Testament, and I'm going to make sure I don't go on a rabbit trail here, because last... The last uh, service I did, and I, I went too long. But anyway, but those festivals are good, and they, those festivals are rich with symbolism. I'd like to do a series on it sometime. 
and a, of God, and you can learn so much about God in those festivals. And you can learn so much about the end times, because the final three festivals are going to be are going to be fulfilled by Jesus when He comes back. And the Gospels come alive when you study the first four. Okay, they're amazing. Lots there to study, but we aren't morally obligated to do them. They're part of the ceremonial laws. And Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you on any of those. They're ceremonial. They've been canceled. All right? Now, we've got another one up there. The Sabbath. That one's a little more controversial. Um, the people argue, and again, in Christian circles, there's all kinds of arguments. Is the Sabbath a moral law? Is it a ceremonial law? And, I mean, there's whole denominations. Like the Seventh-day Adventists, they still celebrate the Sabbath as only Saturday. And they teach very strongly that the Sabbath is a moral law. So if you break the Sabbath... In their theology, that is just as bad as breaking some of the other big moral laws like do not murder, you know, don't commit adultery, don't lie. That's the same kind of law, okay? And uh, so we here at Southland, we've kind of got our foot in both camps, right? Because we have Saturday services and Sunday. So, so uh, we're trying to cover our bases. But anyway, um, <laughs> but the Sabbath, right here, he names it. He says, this is a ceremonial law. There's no judgment on that stuff. That's gone in, in the new covenant, okay? And now I know for some of you, if you've been kind of indoctrinated with the, some of that Sabbath stuff, you might need more in-depth uh, explanation than what I can give you here uh, this morning. But online on my paper, again, I, I spend pages. I got a whole chapter on the Sabbath and different scriptures, why uh, we believe it's not a moral law. But, uh, but I'll show you that in just a minute. But here's what I mean when I say that the Sabbath is not a moral law. Because some of you might be freaking out. You might be thinking to yourself, Chris, are you saying that none of us, that we never need to take a day off during the week, that we can just work seven days a week and that's a good idea? No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay? Taking a day off every week is a creation principle. God has made us human beings for a rhythm of rest, and that rhythm runs weekly. And anyone who doesn't take a day of rest weekly from work, and by the way, can I just say this? A day of rest is more than just sitting back and watching movies all day. That's not a day of rest. That's relaxation. It's actually killing your soul, okay? Rest is you rest from your work, and you think about God a little bit during the day too. And you rest your spirit, okay? Okay? And certainly God has made us for this cycle that all of us need a regular rhythm at least once a week where you stop from your, from your work, you think about God, you connect with God, all that sort of stuff. And if you don't do that, you are not going to be healthy physically, you are not going to be healthy spiritually. Guaranteed, you're going to break down at some point in one of the, or both of those areas, okay? So you say, well, what do you mean then that the Sabbath isn't a moral law if you're still saying that we need a break once a week? Here's what I mean when I say that the Sabbath is not a moral law. First of all, it doesn't matter what day of the week you take as your Sabbath. See, if the Sabbath is a moral law, then it has to be Saturday because that's what it was in the Old Testament. It had to be Saturday, okay? If the Sabbath is a moral law, then any of you who doesn't take your day of rest on Saturday, you are sinning the same as breaking, you know, do not steal, do not commit adultery, all those sorts of things, Okay? The second thing, what I mean when I say the Sabbath is not a moral law, not only can you do it on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever it works. And I mean, that's, I mean, because we've got police officers and firefighters and doctors. It doesn't always work to have it on Saturday or Sunday. And that's okay in the New Testament, all right? Here's the second thing it means that the Sabbath is not a moral law. You can miss it sometimes, and it's not a sin, okay? I mean, I've got a friend who, uh, I mean, some of you are truckers, and you sometimes do a long run. It's longer than a week, okay? I, had a fr- I have a friend who works in, in, in emergency uh, with with uh, food and disease and, and animal stuff with the government here in the province. And last week they had a flu outbreak with some uh, birds uh, up north. And so he was gone for 15 days in a row just working this thing. That's not a sin. If the Sabbath is a moral law, it's a sin if you miss a Sabbath. Okay? What I'm saying is we need a day of rest every week, but it doesn't matter what day. Okay? 
and it, and it also doesn't matter if you sometimes have to miss, okay? And you say, now convince me, okay? This is all on the paper. Let me just show you uh, two quick things, okay? What, how I got convinced that the Sabbath is not a moral law. First of all, uh, except for the Ten Commandments, everywhere when the Sabbath is listed in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's always grouped together with other ceremonial laws. And a, a second thing that was really convincing to me, and there's many more than this, but a second thing that was very convincing to me too, is this passage I'm going to read to you now, which is Isaiah 1, verses 13 to 14. And uh, here God says this to the Israelites, Bring no more vain offerings, okay? Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Okay? And let me give you a little background to this passage. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll find passages like this, where God gets angry at the Israelites for following the ceremonial laws. And you say, well, he told them to do it. Why would he get mad at them for doing it? Here's what they would, what they would do. The Israelites would, because God gave them less important laws, like the ceremonial laws, and he gave them more important laws that were the moral, the moral laws, which are the ones that God really loves. Love your neighbor as yourself, how you treat people. Okay? And what the Israelites would do is they would obey the ceremonial ones, the ones that were less important to God, and they would neglect, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and they would not treat people right. They would take advantage of people. They would lie. They would steal. They would cheat. So they would totally disregard these laws here and live in wickedness, but they would still show up at the temple all the time and do all that stuff. And whenever this would happen, you'll find passages like this throughout the scripture. God would say, I hate that. I hate when you do the less important ones while you're ignoring the more important. And so you say, I hate that. And so this is an example where he's saying, I hate. And he showed a bunch of ceremonial laws. And he's got new moons and Sabbaths and some of these convocations and all sort of stuff. Now it's interesting again that he lists the Sabbath here with ceremonial laws. And he says, I have become weary of these things. I've become weary of your Sabbath keeping. I've become burdened by your Sabbath keeping. Now, people are arguing that the Sabbath is a moral law. But let's just try and, and put a moral law into that Sabbath one and see if it makes sense. Can you imagine God saying in this thing, I have become weary of you guys telling the truth all the time? Can you imagine God saying that? No. Can you imagine God ever saying, my soul is burdened because you guys are loving your neighbor as yourself? I'm sick of it. I'm sick of all the love. I'm sick of all the truth telling. I'm sick of all the integrity. Can you imagine him saying that? No. No. But he does say that about the Sabbath. And therefore, God clearly does not see the Sabbath on the same level playing field with those moral laws. Do you see where I'm going with this? All right. You don't. You didn't respond to me. That's fine. We'll just go on anyway. Because <laughs> there's one more kind of ceremonial laws, and this is where we get some of the embarrassing laws. The clean and unclean laws about blood, sex, and food. Okay. <clears throat> And it's right out of this group. This group is part of the ceremonial laws that have been canceled, but it's right out of this group. This is the one where people are pulling stuff out and they're saying, look, God is weird and God is gross and all this sort of stuff. And they're accusing God of all kinds of crazy things. And so um, let's look at the menstruation laws, for example, okay? And uh, ladies, Leviticus 15, uh, it's a great chapter for you to go and, and meditate on this week, all right? Let's look at one of these laws, all right? Here we go. Lord, help me. Here we go. Leviticus 15, 15 19 to 20. <laughs> I'm betting right now, I bet you there isn't a person here today who has ever heard a message with this verse in it, okay? And it's, hopefully, it's going to be the last one I ever have to do. 
When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge of her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. Okay, and people look at this passage and they say, look, what? God is unfair to women. God thinks women are low and dirty and sinful, and it's not even something they can help. And he says they're unclean. He says they're sinful and they're dirty. And they pull out laws like this and they say God doesn't love women, and God thinks less of women and stuff like that. Okay? So I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. There's one other law I want to show you first. And they also say the same about sex. Here's one of the sex laws, Leviticus 15, verse 18. After a man and a woman have sexual intercourse, they must each bathe in water and they will remain unclean until the next evening. And so people look at verses like this and they say, God is a prude. Okay? He thinks sex is dirty and shameful and not good and all sort of stuff. So this is what they're saying. They're taking laws like this and God thinks women are low and God thinks women are dirty and God condemns people for stuff they can't help and God thinks sex is no good and all this sort of stuff. Okay? And I'm going to explain these laws to you in just a moment. Before I even do that, I have to wipe that from your mind. You, have, you cannot think that God thinks women are, are low or dirty or shameful or that God thinks that about sex. And so let me prove it to you first, and then we'll come back and I'll explain what he is saying here. But if we go back to creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 says this, And God saw what? Everything. Everything means everything. It, do, it leaves out nothing. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God looked at everything he had made when he made creation. That includes women. That includes sex. Okay? These, I mean, these are things. Everything he made came from his mind. No one told him you have to make this. He wasn't forced to make these things. He thought them up out of nothing. He invented sex. He invented women. And he said, God saw everything that he made and behold, it was not just good, but very good. Okay? This is really important, all right? So God does not think that women are low or shameful. He does not blame them for things that they cannot help. And God does not think those things about sex either, all right? So let's go back to the unclean laws. Now people say, well then, why does he make these unclean laws? Why does he say a woman who's having her period is unclean for seven days and everything she touches is unclean, okay? Here's the first thing you need to understand. Okay, and this is helping. I'm helping you, by the way, because you're reading your Old Testament and you're hearing people on the radio and in books and in magazines saying that God's immoral and God's unjust and you're reading it and you don't know what, how, to, how to explain it in your own heart and it plants seeds of doubt. I'm going to show you now. These are good laws. First thing you need to know is that unclean, when God says unclean and there's a law about uncleanness in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean dirty or sinful or shameful. That's what we think when we hear unclean. We hear a woman in her period is unclean for seven days, and we hear God saying she has something to be embarrassed about. God's mad at her. She's sinful. That's not what unclean means. A better way of thinking about that word unclean would be to think of it as separate. God puts a label, and what God's saying is after a husband and wife have sex, there's a label on them now. They're separate. They need to be separate for a certain short period of time. During that short period of time, they have to remain separate from the temple and from worship, and they should remain separate as much as possible from other people. Because if you te- touch someone else while you're in an unclean state, they have to become separate. They become unclean, okay? So people don't want to be around you that much, okay? So there's a period of separateness. When, when a woman's in her period, she's going to be separate in these laws, okay? And remember, these have been canceled, so we don't need to worry about unclean and clean anymore. But there's stuff we can learn, and I'm showing you that God's just. And when a, and when a couple has sex, then they're separate from the temple and from other people for a little while, all right? Now you say, well, why would God... Why? It just seems so strange. Okay, already the law looks a little better when you realize it's not dirty and shameful. It's separate. 
But we still wonder, why would he make a law like that? Okay? Let me explain to you something really important about God's character that you have to know. Okay? God, he does not, God has a place for everything. That is a really important thing to remember. When God says that something's good, he doesn't mean that it's good everywhere, anywhere, all the time. Because even good things have their place. And God has boundaries around even good things. And he says, this good thing is not good here, 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 or here, but it is good here. I like it, but I don't like it over here. And this thing over here is totally fine and good, but I only like it here and not over here. There's boundaries. And everything has its place. Now, we have no concept of this in our culture anymore. Our culture is the opposite of this. See, in the Old Testament, these laws help them to understand this part about God. In our culture, we think if it's good, it's good anywhere all the time. So let's take sex as an example. Our culture says sex is good. And then what they say is, and if sex is good, it's good in marriage, it's good outside of marriage, it's good before marriage. Our culture says, okay, sex is good in the bedroom, it's also good on TV and in magazines. Our culture says sex is good in private, it's also good in public. Sex, if sex is good, sex is good anywhere, everywhere, however. And God says, no, 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 no. Sex is very good, but only in this one place, in the privacy of a bedroom between a husband and wife. And so what he does, and now the other thing you have to realize is that in the surrounding pagan nations around Israel, uh, sex and worship and religion were mixed very strongly. Okay, and so all the nations around Israel, in fact, in those nations, the common thinking of the day was, you're not spiritual if you don't mix sex and religion. And so the the surrounding nations around Israel had the most vile and debauched festivals and religious activities. I mean, they had just debauched feasts and holidays, and there was sex in the temples and at their gatherings. It was disgusting. And so when God birthed this brand new nation, Israel, as we talked about last week, and he's birthing this brand new blank slate Israel, he says, he looks at these vile practices where people are mixing things that shouldn't be mixed, and he says, not in my nation. Not in my temple. And he says, okay, worship is good and sex is good, but those two things are not good together. So he says, and here's how one way I'm going to separate them is we're going to put a label of unclean, which just means separate. We're going to put a separate label on couples after they've had sex. They can't even go into the temple. That's how we're going to divide this thing up very, very cleanly. Do you see that? So God says, now you're unclean. He's not meaning you're dirty or shameful. You did something you should be embarrassed of. No. He says, but you can't go and do that in the temple or right before you come to the temple or right after. We're going to keep those things really separate. And then another thing that, that, that these unclean laws is, they brought dignity to the act of sex because they, they, they put a big damper on casual sex. See, and one of the things that's just disgusting in our culture, and it's even in our Christian culture, which is really doubly disgusting, But we have boys and girls, I won't even call them men and women because they have no control over their passions. And their boyfriend and girlfriend, and they just, I can't control myself, we're just in love. And they have sex in the car or at their friend's house or at their mom's house or wherever, they're in the bedroom, and then they come out and hang out with people. And God says, not in my nation, yuck. He says, sex is a separate thing. We're going to put some hoops in place here that you're not just hanging out with people and having sex and hooking up in these different things. He says, this is going to be, once you have sex, you are unclean. You are separate till evening. I want to give you some hoops to jump through. This is not something you do in a hookup casual way. 
And so we see God bringing this thing into a place where this is going to be done. It's the places in a couple's home, in a married couple's home, and that's where it should stay. So you've got these clean and unclean laws. Not God being mad at married couples for having sex. Not God being a prude. But God saying everything has its place. Does that make sense? That makes good sense to me. He's a good God. Okay? Now, let's talk about the menstruation laws. One last kick here. I just got to do it one more time this weekend, all right? Because you've got to explain those a little differently, all right? So why would God, women having their period, why, why are they unclean for this period of time? And everything they touch is unclean. Everything they touch is separate, okay? Well, let's talk again. What is the purpose of these ceremonial laws, okay? The purpose of the ceremonial laws, again, remember, are to give, bring their temporary covering of sin, and then there's this, this, this huge element of these laws are pointing towards Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going to die on the cross, and his blood is the most precious thing ever. It's going to pay for sins once and for all. Uh, every single law, I mean, everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards that. Every story, every law is pointing towards Jesus. I mean, again, we've talked about this. Abraham and Isaac. God says, Abraham, go up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice your son Isaac. And of course, he doesn't have to follow through. But the whole thing is a picture of what God is going to do to his son on the same mountain. Everything in the Old Testament pointing towards Jesus. And every little law pointing towards Jesus. And so as part of all of this symbolism, God puts in place a bunch of laws about blood. And the reason God puts these laws in place is because he wants the Jewish people to feel the weight and the sacredness and the preciousness of the blood that's going to be spilled for our sins. He does not want them treating blood as common. Again, in the pagan nations around there, people were, they would have ceremonies with drinking blood and all kinds of vile things, cutting themselves till they bled as part of their worship. It was disgusting. And God said, you won't do that in my nation. You are going to think of blood as sacred because this is all leading up to this precious spilling of blood by Jesus Christ. And so he instituted a whole bunch of laws about blood and covering all kinds of things so that they would feel the weight of the preciousness of blood. And so they weren't allowed to eat meat with the blood in it. And they weren't allowed to drink blood, okay? And there was all kinds of laws about the shedding of blood if it was intentional or accidental and what had to happen when there was blood spilled. And there was even laws about pregnancy because when a woman gives birth, then there's blood there. And then, of course, there's the menstruation law because there's blood there. And and the whole purpose behind it, again, is not that God thinks women are dirty or sinful or shameful when blood's coming out. It's the fact that he doesn't want the Jewish people to think of blood as common. This is precious. The life is in the blood, and your life is going to come from someone else's blood at some point. And so every time there was a spilling or a shedding of blood, this was a reminder to them of something that was coming and the preciousness of that blood. And so you have these menstruation laws. And so when a woman would be having her period, now she had to stay separate from the temple. Okay? And again, all of this is the preciousness of blood and the spilling of blood. You say, well, again, well, God's harsh. Okay? Now she can't go into the temple for a few days when she's having her period. Okay? You're thinking of it actually from the wrong point of view. Think of it from the woman's point of view. She doesn't have to go to the temple while she's having her period. Isn't that true? She doesn't have... Okay, you don't need to say anything, but uh, we'll just keep going here. I'm just going to move right on through. But um, she doesn't have to, okay? She doesn't have to go and be with throngs of people, okay, in a potentially embarrassing situation. She is free from having to go to the temple during her period. It's actually merciful. And second of all, because God... This is the thing. The main reason is because the symbolism about blood but in everything god does he's merciful and good so it's not harsh the side the side effects is actually merciful towards women because everything they they would touch would be unclean 
And so what would happen is people didn't want them touching all kinds of stuff because then those people, if they would touch that, they would be unclean and they'd have to be separate from the temple and everything. And so the effect of this was that the women, there was lots of jobs that the women were normally responsible for, but when they were in their unclean state, their separate state, they couldn't touch those things, which meant they couldn't do those jobs, which meant it was a built-in rest period for them. God is merciful in everything. It's not you can't go to the temple. It's you don't have to go to the temple, and I'm going to give you a built-in rest, and let's meditate on this whole thing of what Jesus is going to do for us someday. Good laws, amen, and a good God. Okay. <laughs> Way ahead. Okay, we've got to leave the ceremonial laws here. Okay? So ceremonial laws canceled. Lots to learn about Jesus. Again, someday do a whole series on that. Okay? Other kinds of laws. We've got separation laws, and those are also canceled. We talked about these last week. The main one being circumcision. Other kinds of laws, when you read in the Old Testament, you'll find laws about don't mix two kinds of cloth or don't mix two kinds of crops. Some of those laws had very practical side effects. But the main purpose of those laws was separation. They were pictures of the separateness between holy and unholy, between Jews and Gentiles. Those laws are all canceled. They're not for today. We can learn from them, but they're not for today. Civil laws, third kind of laws, and we won't spend time on these either because we're marching towards the moral laws. The civil laws, not binding. Okay, now notice I didn't say canceled. And the reason I didn't say canceled on those is because then you think, well, we shouldn't do them. But in in reality, the civil laws have an immense amount of wisdom. The civil laws are the laws that God gave Israel for agriculture and court system and justice and taxation and all that sort of stuff. And we don't have to obey them now today because God gave them to the Jewish people. But here's the thing. If our nation would ever get on its knees and repent before God and say we want to be a godly nation, we would find amazing laws for our country in those civil laws. They're not binding on us today. It's not like when you're reading your Bible and you find a building code law, oh, I've got to do that. No. But there's principles there that would revolutionize the way we do government. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to institute all kinds of amazing laws like that again. And so there's lots to learn there, lots of wisdom, but they're not binding. You don't got to do them, okay? And that brings us to the fourth kind. So the first three, canceled, canceled, not binding, and then we come to the moral laws. And these are the backbone of the Old Testament. Okay, these are the laws that apply to Jew, to Gentile. It doesn't matter when you live or who you are or where you live or what culture. Right and wrong is not relative. It's right or it's wrong. And these are the good laws that show us what right and wrong look like. If you break one of these laws, it doesn't matter if they're in the Old Testament. A lot of Christians read the Old Testament and they just, hmm, doesn't, yeah, good. And they think, oh, it doesn't matter if I break that law because it's in the Old Testament. What? If it's a moral law, it's for all time. You break it, it's sin. You want to walk in fellowship with God? You honor these laws. These are the ones he's passionate about. Justice, faithfulness, merciful. These aren't do's and don'ts. The moral laws aren't do's and don'ts. There's lots of do's and don'ts in the other ones, but the moral laws aren't about do's and don'ts. They're about loving God. They're about loving people. And they matter for all time. So the question is, you know, which ones are moral laws? Now, most of the moral laws are obvious. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal. We read those. Okay, obviously those are for today. Obvious. What I want to help you do now is what do we do about the middle ones where Christians fight about this? How do we know which, because some of the, again, do not murder, obvious, that's a moral law. And we look at some of the sacrifice laws, obvious, that's a ceremonial law. But then there's these other ones that niggle. And some Christians say yes, and some Christians say no. There's like the tattoo law, there's the Sabbath law. We don't know what to do with these middle laws. What I want to show you now is, I want to give you confidence when you're reading your Old Testament that you don't need to worry about middle laws. You're going to find out where everything goes, okay? 
You're going to find out where everything goes. So let me give you three tests to figure out if something is a moral law, right? Three tests of a moral law. And the first one is obvious. We've been talking about this lots in this series. If it's a moral law, it's a relational law. It has to do with how you treat people. It defines love your neighbor as yourself. It's a, if it's a moral law, it, it's a relational law. Those laws are forever. They're not just, they weren't temporary. Those are the ones God really cares about because he is a loving God. Again, the obvious ones are do not murder, do not commit adultery. But there's lots of less obvious ones we never think about, okay? Let's just go through some of the less obvious uh, relational laws. There are moral laws for today. You break these, it's sin. Leviticus 19 verse 32 says, respect and give honor to the elderly. That's a moral law for today. It's a relational law. It has to do with how you treat people. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you read that law, you disrespect an elderly person, God sees that as sin, just as much in New Testament times as in Old Testament times. That law is forever. After Jesus comes back, well, I guess there won't be elderly people, really. We'll all be kind of young. But whatever, okay? It's a good law for all time. Leviticus 19.14. Do not disrespect handicapped people. We talked about this law in this series as well. Give special honor to handicapped people. That is, it's a law about how you treat people. It's how you respect people. It's how you honor the weak and the downtrodden. That's a moral law for today. You break that law today, God's angry, just like he was in the Old Testament. That's a good law. It's not a do and a don't. It's about loving people. Relational laws are forever. Deuteronomy 22 says you help people who are in need of assistance. You, need, you see someone in need of assistance, you help them. You say, I was too busy. It didn't work out for me. And God says, you sinned. Confess it and repent. It's a sin in the New Testament, just like in the Old Testament. That's a moral law. It has to do with loving people. Exodus 22, verse uh, 21 says, Do not oppress a foreigner. That's a relational law. It has to do with how you treat people. It's a moral law. It's for today, just as much as it was for 3,500 years ago. You don't race, you know, racist jokes, taking advantage of an, of an immigrant, putting people down, all that sort of stuff. God says it's a sin. And those are laws that he loves. Those are laws he's passionate about, okay? Now, let's contrast. So those are relational laws. If it's a relational law, if it has to do with how you treat people, it's forever, it applies to today, meditate on it. Those laws are great. Each one of them is, is pulling out another piece of what it means to love God and love people. You meditate on it, you improve in that area, and God says, I love you, okay? But let's contrast that now. Sometimes it helps us to see what something is by seeing what it isn't. Let's contrast it with some of these in-between laws. Let's think about tattoos and Sabbath. Are the, how do those match up with this test? Is it a relational law? Well, a tattoo, is that a relational law? Does it have to do with what you, how you treat people? No. It just failed the first test of being a moral law. Now, I'm not telling people they should go out and get a tattoo. Not at all. You know, tattoos are like computers. The moment you get one, it's out of date, okay? I'm not telling people you should get a tattoo. Okay? I'm not telling people you should get a tattoo. Don't go out of here and say, Chris said I should get a tattoo. We're discerning between what is important to God and what is not important to God. That's what legalists do. You know what legalists do? Legalists take laws. This is what the Pharisees did. They take laws that are not important to God and they make them just as important as the major ones. And in this series, I'm helping you discern between what is important to God and what is not important to God. It just failed the first test. Same with the Sabbath. If I celebrate the Sabbath on a Sunday... Am I treating people any less good than if, I, than if I do it on a Saturday? No. So relational law. You come across a relational law, it's forever. Obey it. Take it seriously. If it's not a relational law, well, let's move on to the next test. Another test here. What is a moral law? A moral law is rooted in God's character. Okay? God's character is never changing. 
his character. And that means that laws that are tied into this is how God behaves because this is God's character, that law is never going to change either. So again, the one we've been talking about the most in this series is 1 John 4, God is love. Therefore, any commandment that ties into love is never going to change because God is always love. So any law that helps you to love, that's for today. It's sin to break it. What else do we know about God's character? Well, uh, here's one, John 14. Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. God is truth. This is part of his character. God is truth. Hebrews 6.18 says this, it is impossible for God to lie. Think about that. That is part of God's character. He is truth. He cannot lie. He cannot break a promise. Therefore, any law that talks about lying, being dishonest, telling the truth, keeping your promises, those are not ceremonial laws or separation laws or civil laws. Those are laws that are part of who God is. They are never changing. They are just as true today as they were 3,500 years ago. And God holds us responsible for walking in relationship with him and walking in righteousness in those laws. So for example, a couple of examples of laws like that, 19, Leviticus 19.36, God says you better have honest scales at work because if you use dishonest scales, it's an abomination to the Lord. Now of course, we don't use scales at work much anymore, but it doesn't take too big of a leap to see that this just means being honest at work. When you sell someone a car or a house or you're selling them whatever it is or services or a job, do you hide information to get that sale? That is an abomination to the Lord. God says, you're going to tell the truth because this is part of who I am. That's just as true today as it was 3,500 years ago. That's not a ceremonial law. That'll never be gone. How about this one? Numbers 30, verses 1 to 2. By the way, I love this. I've, one of the things I've loved the most during this series is bringing out some of these lesser-known uh, moral laws and showing you some of the good laws in God's word. And as you meditate on these, these are the things that God convicts you. He uses these laws to convict you. Oh, Lord, I, I, I mean, I knew telling the truth was important, but I didn't think of it that way. And he just brings you to a whole new level of integrity. Look at this one, Numbers 30, verse 2. Let me show you a moral law, and it's part of God's truth-telling character. This law will never be gone. This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, so if you make a promise to God or a, a promise to someone else, swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, look at this, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. That's, that's not a ceremonial law. That's not a civil law. That's not a separation law. That's tied into God's character. He is the truth. He never breaks a promise. He says, and I don't want you doing it either. Can you imagine? Now, this is, a good, is this a do and a don't law? Is this legalism? This is a great law. Can you imagine if every Christian in Steinbach would live by this law, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in them? What a light we would be to the world. If every time you said you were going to do something, you did it. If when you signed a contract, that meant you were going to fulfill that contract. See, God, people think, well, you know, that was then, this is now. You know, now contracts are made to be broken and it didn't really work and this happened and I didn't foresee this and all sort of stuff. And God says, yuck, my character is truth. Keep your promises. And even if you didn't have a contract, that doesn't matter to God. If you're a Christian and you shook someone's hand and said, I'm going to do it, then that means you're going to do it. You will do all according to all that proceeded from your mouth. This is being a light to the world. This is what God is like. It's actually fun to be like this. It's the good life. So these are moral laws, right? Moral laws are rooted in God's character, okay? Well, let's, let's put the test again to the tattoo law and some of these 
intermediate laws. And Christians are fighting. It's a moral law. No, it isn't. Well, let's put it to the test of a moral law. Tattoo law. Is it rooted in God's character? Anywhere in Scripture do we find God is the God of no markings on his body? You won't find it. How about the Sabbath? Do we find anywhere in Scripture God is the God of one day instead of the other seven? You won't find it. See, those laws, right away we see, here's something that's important to God. What is rooted in his character, here are things that are not as important to God that have been canceled. In fact, they are not rooted in his character. Third test of a moral law. And I just want to give you three. There's actually more, but you can look online. But these are kind of the main ones. If something is a moral law, that means it is universal. There's no exceptions. If something is a moral law, again, right and wrong aren't, they're not relative. If something's right or something's wrong, it's always right or it's always wrong. It doesn't matter what culture you live in or when you live. So if you are coming to a law in the Old Testament, if it's universal, if it applies to Gentiles just like to Jews, if it applies in, in ancient times as well as modern times, then it's a moral law. Okay? So you say, well, how do I know if, if something is, is, uh, is universal? And so let me give you a little rule of thumb. Here's a, a practical rule of thumb when you're reading the Old Testament. How do I know if this law is universal, if it's for me today, if it's for Gentiles, not just Jews? Okay? Here's how you know. Did God hold Gentile nations responsible for it? This is, what I just gave you is really practical. Did God hold Gentile nations responsible for it? If he doesn't get mad at Gentile nations for doing it, then that means it was just for the Jews. But if he does get mad at Gentiles for doing it, then it means it can't be a ceremonial separation or civil law. It has to be a moral law for all people all time. Okay? So, so for example, you'll read through the Old Testament, you will never find a single place where God says, I am angry with Egypt because she's not keeping the Sabbath. You won't find it. You won't find God burning up the Amorites because of a tattoo. You won't find it. You won't find God be driving nations out of the land because they didn't circumcise their kids. You won't find it. Why? Because all of those laws were for the Jews. But you will find throughout the Old Testament, you read through it, you will find God burning with anger against the nations because they're offering up their kids in fire. You'll find him judging the nations and driving out nations because of sexual immorality and perversion. You'll find him fiercely burning hot because of Gentile nations who are uh, taking advantage of the disadvantage of the young, of the sick, and of the old. You'll find that in the Old Testament too. You'll find him, you'll find him killing and judging nations because of murder and blood in their streets. You'll find all that. So that means that those laws apply to everyone because he applied it to everyone already back then. Really important. I mean, you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, there was, there was no such thing as Jews in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it, only Abraham was there. He hadn't had kids yet. And God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Sexual perversion and immorality. When people come along and say, hey, you don't follow the food laws anymore, therefore homosexuality, you can't follow that one any, anymore either. And I say, yes, we can. They're two completely different kinds of laws. One was temporary, one was forever. One was just for the Jews, one is for all of us. And you can see it in Scripture. Well, let me finish with this. I'm going to finish by talking a little bit about the tattoo law here. And the reason is because I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you why I've been talking about this so much. And I've been giving you principles for you to apply to all the other laws. But then I want to talk a little bit about legalism too. And so let's finish this message by talking a bit about the tattoo law. Is this a universal moral law? We've looked. It's already failed the first two tests. Does it, does it also fail the third test? And it does. Can we find any... any uh, uh, exemptions. Oh, I'm tongue-tied now at the end. Can we find any exceptions 
to the tattoo law in scripture? And we can. What is a tattoo? A tattoo is a permanent mark on a body. It's a permanent mark on a body. Okay? Now, is that inherently a sinful thing to do? It can be sinful. I think a lot of times when people get tattoos, it is sinful because they're doing it because of rebellion or they're doing it because of vanity and they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And then, it, then it's sinful. Why are you doing it, right? But is it inherently morally sinful? Is there no case where a permanent mark on the body could be good? Well, and I find some exceptions to it. And uh, the first one is in Genesis. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied, No, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And then the Lord put a mark. He puts a permanent mark. It's a tattoo on Cain. I don't know where he put it. I'm pointing to my arm. I don't know why. It could have been somewhere on his face probably or something. But anyway, he puts a permanent mark. He permanently marks Cain's body so that people will know, don't touch this man. Now, God would never do anything inherently immoral, right? Let me show you another, another uh, exception. Isaiah 44, verse 5. This is an amazing end times prophecy. And uh, I just love the Jewish people. I love the state of Israel, and I love the Jewish people. And uh, one of the amazing things that's throughout all of Scripture is that at the end of the tribulation, every Jewish person that's left on earth, when Jesus comes back, every one of them is going to get saved. Not a single one who's alive when Jesus comes back is going to not get saved. They're all going to see Jesus and they're going to say, oh, he's a Jew and he's our king and we love him. And they're going to confess their sins. They're going to repent of the fact that as a nation, they didn't follow him all these thousands of years. And they're going to say, now we want you. And Jesus is going to say, I'm saving you. I came back for that. Okay? And they're going to get saved. And there's this cool prophecy. Now, that's not just one prophecy in Scripture. That's dozens and dozens and dozens of Scriptures about that. There's this one cool prophecy in Isaiah 44, verse 5. And in this prophecy, what's going to happen is some of these Jews are going to be so excited to see Jesus when he comes back. They're going to be so excited. And one of the things they're going to do is they're going to tattoo Yeshua on their hands. They're going to tattoo Yeshua on their hands. Look at this. Some will proudly claim I belong to the Lord. Others will say I'm a descendant of Jacob. Some will write the Lord's name on their hands and will take the name of Israel as their own. So again, Tattoos cannot be inherently immoral. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening when Jesus came back. So there, so there are exceptions, okay? So very important. You say, now why have you talked so much about the tattoo and the Sabbath law? Okay, I already alluded to it before, but let me show you a little spectrum. One of the reasons I've been preaching this message is because our culture is steeped in this false grace message where there's no holiness and there's no righteousness and people think, God has forgiven me and I can just live however I want. And they don't realize that they're headed to hell because that is not salvation. And so there's this extreme of false grace. I can do whatever I want and God has just forgiven me automatically and it doesn't matter how I live. That's poison. And then there's this other poison on the other side and people can sometimes start to come out of that one and they come too far. And there's this other poison over here, which is legalism. And legalism is taking minor things and making them major things. And I'll tell you something about the Pharisees. Let me tell you something about the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Not not one of those Pharisees would have had a tattoo because they were so good at the little ones that don't actually matter that much to God. And yet their hearts had completely left God. Their hearts did not love people. They were merciless. They were unjust to people, but they kept all the little ones. That's legalism. God says, I hate that. Many of those same Pharisees who never would have had a tattoo will also not be in heaven. And so one of the things I want us to be very careful of is I want us to discern what, between what is important to God, love God, love people. 
and what is not important to God and what has been canceled and what is much less important, all right? And so I'm never going to get hung up on tattoos. But I am going to get hung up on stuff that is way more serious than that, like gossip and slander and injustice and breaking your word and breaking promises and all that sort of stuff. That's the stuff that matters to God a lot. So let me leave you with one last list on the screen. I'm just going to put it up there all at once. Let's turn those three tests into four easy-to-remember categories. As you're reading the Old Testament, let's turn those three tests into four easy-to-remember categories. You're reading through this, and you're saying, is this a moral law or is it not? The moral laws will all fit into one of these groupings, okay? The love laws, relationship laws, moral. Integrity laws, telling the truth, being honest, all that sort of stuff. That's a moral law, all time. Boundaries of sex laws, okay? They're all over the Old Testament. Leviticus 18 in particular is law after law after law about this is not what sex is supposed to be. Those are moral laws for all time. And then lastly, don't worship idols or be involved in the occult. That's a moral law as well. All right, bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I've, I've done everything I humanly can now. You know what's left for you guys to do is to pray like stink and get into the Old Testament for yourself. Okay? Now you have to just get in there and eat it. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I give you all the glory. Every one of your laws is good. And we love your laws. And I pray, God, that you would give us a spirit of confidence now to get into your word and to begin to obey these laws and to walk in righteousness by your help in relationship with your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.